Welcome to this special episode of Talking Constitutions, a series of podcasts in which we explore the constitutional arrangements that frame the day-to-day affairs of politics. Our subject today is the US Electoral College. And the episode is being made to coincide with the meeting of that college on December the 14th. My name is John Hudson, and with me I have Colin Kidd. Colin is Professor of Modern History at the University of St Andrews and a frequent contributor to the New Statesman, London Review of Books and other august organs of the press. So we've been through the voting on November the 3rd and the subsequent declaration of outcomes in individual states. Colin, can you tell me what is the Electoral College and can you explain how it operates? The Electoral College is a somewhat unusual title for an institution that doesn't actually meet as one. It, it, it meets separately in the, in the various states of, of, of the United States. And um, it's basically the second phase of what is a kind of two-stage electoral process in the United States, where in the first stage, when, when people think that they're actually voting for president, they're, they're actually not. They're, they're voting for a slate of electors in their, in their state who then gather in the state to do the second phase of the process, which is to do the actual voting for president. Now, in most states, in, in 48 of them, in fact, what, what happens is that voters are voting for a, a slate of Republican or Democrat electors. And there's a winner-takes-all system uh, at work whereby whoever wins the state by however small a margin gets all that state's electoral votes. The, but there are two exceptions to this in Nebraska and Maine, where electors are elected by the electoral districts, the congressional districts within the states, plus the winner of the state, winner of the state's overall popular vote, then gets two further electors corresponding to the two senators from the state, because the the numbers of electors are proportionate to the number of congressional representatives for the state, plus each state has two senators. That sounds a complicated and slightly peculiar system. How did it arise and why did it arise? It arises in part, I mean, I think, I think to understand its origins, one, one needs to understand the outlook of the newly independent American revolutionaries in the 1770s and 1780s, because they did not feel optimistic In fact, they felt pessimistic. At the point when the revolution took place, there were fears for liberty. 1772 had been the year when the elective monarchy of Poland was partitioned among three despotic Eastern powers in Europe. 1772 was also the year when, in a coup, Gustavus III of Sweden suppressed the, or at least effective control over the Reichstag. And so there was a pessimistic outlook uh, among the revolutionaries. And this pessimism was compounded by the uh, the set of ideas that they held, which we, by a shorthand, we tend to call classical republicanism. And this was this classical republicanism was, was the view that most republics did not enjoy long lives. In fact, that they were highly unstable 
and that most republics tended to end in some kind of dictatorship as with the Roman Republic collapsed into the dictatorship of, of Julius Caesar and then the, the empire or principate of uh, Octavian Augustus. Similarly, the English Revolution of the 1640s had ended with the, the rule of the general uh, Oliver Cromwell. So th there were fears that republics were fated to fall apart. And also that most republics that worked were small in geography, like ancient city-states. And so the, the size of the, of the new uh, grouping of 13 independent states, that was a, that was a worry. There was a worry that um, people in the states might not know people in, in other states. They wouldn't know who, who, who to vote for. There was also concern that they might, ordinary people might be partial to their own state and, and that this geographical partiality or parochialism might cramp their, their views. There were also concerns that if then the election of the president was left to, to the new Congress, that there might be cabals and factions that would emerge in that, that would also distort the process. And so to get away from the individual electors in the states, the, the actual population who might be ignorant of life in other states, and to get away from the fear of cabal in the legislators themselves, they resorted to this unusual method of creating a separate institution where no cabals would develop, and equally a grouping of electors who would possess sort of a, a wide outlook, would, would possess some kind of cosmopolitan outlook that would transcend the, the geographical limits of, of their own state. Now, that's the complicated story. The, there's also a very simple story, which is that this vexed issue of the uh, of how to elect the president was also a simple one because the convention that met in 1787 to decide on the new constitution they knew one thing for sure that the new president the first president was going to be George Washington and so in, to that extent they were somewhat carefree about who they might appoint but at the same time they were also quite concerned about finding the right kind of machinery, machinery that would somehow overcome uh, the fate to which all Republican experiments seem to be foreordained and predestined. So from our point of view, ironically, one of its purposes was to prevent the domination of party within politics. I remember Alistair Cook always saying you have to remember that America was in not intended to be a democracy, which was a bad word in the late 18th century. It was intended to be a republic. Is this fair enough? Oh, yes, because what, what these founders uh, were imbued with was uh, this Aristotelian uh, out outlook that the ideal was some kind of mixed government, what Aristotle would have called a, a pol politeia, a, a polity. And as you say, uh, democracy was, was, was a dirty word, just like party. In fact, th th there's a more complex story going on here, because also when the, when the new constitution was being ratified, three of the most influential members of the founding generation, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison and John Jay, wrote 
85 articles in the New York press during the ratifying process in New York uh, State over the winter of 1787-8. And these articles are now known as the Federalist Papers. And it was quite clear in, in, in those articles that Hamilton in particular saw the new system as one that overcame the dangers of demagoguery, of a, of a, of a Caesar-like figure arising as, as a demagogue. And in fact, in the very first Federalist paper, Hamilton wrote about those men who have overturned the liberties of republics and that the greatest number of them began their career by paying an obsequious court to the people. In other words, were, were demagogues. They began demagogues and ended tyrants. And interestingly, when Hamilton in Federalist number 68 wrote about the process of the Electoral College, he said with the Electoral College process, there was a moral certainty that the office of president will never fall to the lot of any man who is not in an eminent degree endowed with the requisite qualifications. So in other words, what the founding fathers saw was exactly the danger of a Trump-like figure. And precisely because they saw the danger of a Trump-like demagogue coming down the tracks, they designed the Electoral College precisely to avoid a Trump-like figure being elected because these electors in the Electoral College were deemed to be uh, men, of course. They were white males um, of property, uh, of, of some standing and, and a wide knowledge of the world, and that, that they would be able to see through any, any demagogue. And, and interestingly, one of the other reasons for the Electoral College was that by having this indirect mode of election, it would, uh, as it were, act as an insulating uh, institution between the people and the process of appointing the president. And as such, it would prevent uh, popular tumults and riots. So in a sense, uh, the founders hoped with the Electoral College to avoid exactly the sort of problems that we've seen in 2020. What is the franchise for electing to the Electoral College originally? Well, it's not clear that there is any franchise. And in fact, this is, the, this is a really tricky subject, but it's not clear that there is a demic, democratic right to vote for the president in, in, in the Constitution. Uh, in fact, Article 2 of the Constitution gives the power of designating the process of uh, appointing or, or electing electors to the legislatures of the respective states. And while it's clear even, even now that you obviously can't, you, a state couldn't uh, disenfranchise on grounds of race or gender, that would offend the, the uh, uh, Equal Protection Clause of the, of the 14th Amendment, but it's still it's still not clear that you actually have a democratic right, so long as the state doesn't uh, make invidious distinctions between its citizens in the process, it's not clear that any individual actually has a democratic right to vote for an elector for president. And you mentioned early on that there's a specific number of electors for each state. Yeah. How is the number originally determined? Yes, well, there's, a, there's, a, there's another back, back story here that the numbers are based on the number of 
Congress, congressional representatives plus senators for the state. But it's not strictly speaking based on the population of voters in the state. And there was a kind of sly uh, concession uh, to the South, uh, to the slaveholding South in the original determination of, of the Electoral College because the numbers of electors are based on a state's population, whereby the number of black slaves in, in, a, in a state count individually as three-fifths of, of, of a person. So this was a way that the interests of the slaveholding South were preserved in the, in the mechanisms of the original formulation of the Electoral College. So as you can see, there were a whole number of different issues uh, at stake at this point. So how did the Electoral College function to begin with? Well, the whole system, as you say, is premised on the non-existence of party. Unfortunately, party developed very quickly in the 1790s between, on the one hand, federalists who feared the French Revolution and who also saw the need for the new state to develop financial and fiscal um, arrangements. And on the other hand, their opponents, confusingly called democratic republicans at this point, who saw the future of the United States as being an agrarian republic without strong financial interests and who were also closer to, to the French Revolution. Now, in some of the early uh, state meetings of the Electoral College, we know that in 1792, the electors in North Carolina and in Virginia, when they met, actually debated the merits of the presidential candidates. So in other words, the electors got together and saw that their role was to act as a cutout between the mass of the people and the presidency and enjoyed independence to discuss matters uh, amongst themselves. But by and large, the onset of party in, in the 1790s quickly saw to it that, that the process became one of determining party party slates and this independence, this deliberative quality in the early meetings of the state electoral colleges, that that soon gave way to uh, as it were, a kind of partisan partisan rigor. Now, very early on, though, another problem uh, arose because the electors initially had two had two uh, votes for president. Uh, and vice president. And in the 1800 election, there was no real distinction made between president and vice president. Whoever came second was deemed to be the vice president, as it were, regardless of party. But what happened here with party coming into play, Jefferson and his very slippery vice presidential candidate, Aaron Burr, both received 73 electoral college votes. And this led to 36 different ballots in the House of Representatives until they got a, a return because Burr basically, as it were, became a kind of a stooge of the Federalists who wanted to thwart Thomas Jefferson's chances of election. Uh, and so it took 37 different counts to get a, 
a result in 1800. And so the 12th Amendment is passed in 1804, by which the electors vote separately for president and vice and vice president. So under the original system, one would have ended up with President Biden and Vice President Trump. That, that's, that's more or less what happened in, in, in the early system. If, for example, in 1796, you get pre President John Adams, who's, who's a Federalist, and Vice President Thomas Jefferson, who's a Democratic Republican. Yeah, exactly. Has it ever happened there's not been a majority within the Electoral the, College? And if so, what happens then? Yeah, well, this is, this is the real nightmare in the Constitution. I guess it happened in that curious election in 1800, and it happened once again in 1824, when there were four candidates in the presidential election, John Quincy Adams, the son of President John Adams, Andrew Jackson, William Crawford, and Henry Clay. And they were all part of, but by this stage, the Federalists were, were a kind of spent force, and all the four of these candidates represented factions within the ruling democratic republican well, it's effectively a one-party state apart from the supreme court by this time and um, i can give you the, the results here adams wins 115,000 votes which gets him 84 electoral votes jackson has 152,000 and gets 99 electoral votes and crawford and clay on about 40 odd thousand votes get 41 and 37 electoral uh, college votes respectively. Now, what happens next is the only three candidates go forward to the House of Representatives who take hold of the process after there's no result in the electoral college. And so what then happens is that the um, House of Representatives vote for the remaining three candidates but they do so not as individuals, but as state blocks. In other words, each state, no matter how large, no matter how small, has one vote. So that meant that with Clay eliminated, the end result was that although Jackson had been ahead in the initial initial vote, he only picked up seven states, Crawford picked up four, and Adams who had trailed Jackson in the initial election, won 13 states. Now, as I say, this would be an absolute nightmare if it happened again, because if it happened under modern circumstances, you would have an indeterminate election process where in the House of Representatives, Wyoming and Montana, empty as they are, and Rhode Island and Delaware, tiny as they are, would each have one vote, the same as the one vote for Texas and New York and Illinois and California. And so it would be a, a massive affront to one person, one vote. I mean, a larger affront than the Electoral College already is to the one person, one vote a principle. Are there other controversial elections within the Electoral College? Yeah, I, I suppose the most controversial was the 1876 election which came a decade after the end of, of the Civil War. And it was a, a somewhat confused result where there were duplicate election re returns 
I, 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 and slates of electors from South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana. And as a plus, I think there's also um, a disputed elector from Oregon as well. And as a result, an electoral commission had to be formed to decide which sets of returns to accept. And as a result of the two candidates, uh, Samuel Tilden, who had actually won the popular vote for the Democrats with 4.28 million votes, picked up 184 electoral college votes. And Rutherford Hayes for the Republicans, who had only picked up 4 million in the popular vote, won by one electoral college vote on 185 to 184. But that wasn't the real reason for the result because the Electoral Commission was itself tied and in the end, the election was decided by the Republicans basically saying to the Democrats that we, that in the event of you giving us the presidency in this election, we'll take our troops, federal troops out of the South and allow you basically, despite the abolition of slavery, to return to white supremacy in the South and what's what's later called Jim Crow. And so it's it's basically yet again, the issue of race enters the picture. It's a very unsavory result, but that was probably the worst, uh, most complicated result we've had. But even where we've got fairly straight, seemingly straightforward outcomes, the Electoral College does distort things dreadfully. For example, in the 1860 election won by Abraham Lincoln, he got 1.8 million votes, picking up a majority in the Electoral College of 180 votes. And he had three other contenders running against him. The person who came second in the popular vote, Stephen Douglas, a Democrat who had who picked up votes across the whole of the United States, North and South at this point, picked up 1.379 million popular votes, but only because his vote was so spread out, only picked up 12 electoral college votes. And the candidates who came third and fourth in, in the popular vote, that is John Breckenridge, who was a Southern Democrat, and John Bell, for the border state constitutional union party, they picked up 72 and 39 electoral college votes respectively. And Lincoln won a substantial majority on the electoral college without coming anywhere near a majority in the popular vote. So that's a huge distortion. Or even a century later, in the 1960 presidential election, run between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. Kennedy and Nixon were neck and neck in the uh, popular vote. The, 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 the um, popular vote went 34.2 million to 34.1 million, only about 100,000 votes between them. Yet Kennedy wins by 303 to 219. Massive landslide in the Electoral College. So there are huge distortions. Also in 1976, if Gerald Ford had won about 10,000 more votes in a couple of states, I think it was Ohio and Hawaii, he would have won the Electoral College despite Jimmy Carter 
being streets ahead in, in, in the popular vote. So there are, there are huge distortions take place by having this two-stage process, a popular vote followed by an electoral college vote. Given all these difficulties, what arguments are there in favour of the electoral college? Well, I think the, the principal argument here is that the United States is a federal, federal system and in, in which states enjoy some co-share of sovereignty with the federal government. And so somehow the Electoral College, in some measure, takes account of that federal principle. It also gives some clout to small states in the process. And it means that candidates have to engage in some way with the diversity of America, that they don't just appeal to the huge agglomerations of, of voters on, on the coasts of America and, and in urban, urban centres. There has also been an argument that somehow having the Electoral College, it reinforces a two-party system. And as such, it seemed to be something that produces broad-based coalition-like parties that are grounded in moderation. But of course, I, I'm not quite sure that in recent decades that that, that that appears to be working very well. So that indeed is an argument that isn't working well in present terms and is completely opposed to the original intention of the Constitution. Yes, well, the original intention, of course, is, is, that, is that electors in the states exercise their own independent judgment. We now have some states have introduced laws uh, called faithless electoral laws, which are meant to impose penalties or annul the results where electors do not vote according to the slate from which they have been, the party slate from which they have been elected in, in the states and have actually done as the founders intended, exercised their own independent judgment after some deliberation. And so there is clearly a tension here between modern political practice and what the founders intended the process to be. So there are lots of arguments and possibly further arguments against the Electoral College. Is there any possibility of reform? Well, initial efforts at reform for much of much of the 19th century and into the first half of the 20th century were basically based on a critique of the winner-takes-all slate system in, in the individual states, which I mean, it is one of the causes of, the, of some of this distortion. And of course, as, as we see at the moment with Nebraska and Maine, not using those systems. This is not something that is constitutionally mandated. And I suppose that's probably the best way around this would, would be to bring in some amendment to the constitution that ends the winner-take-all system in individual states, though there might well still be a great deal of opposition to that. Since the middle of the 20th century, the movement for reform has focused more on bringing in a national popular vote for president, just doing away with the Electoral College. And in the, 70, in the 60s and 70s, there were massive popular majorities between about 65 and 80% of the general public favored 
a move to a national popular vote doing away with the Electoral College. And that was both among Republicans and Democrats. But unfortunately, various reform efforts were stymied, usually with Southern Democrats playing playing the role of opposition here. And somehow the cross-party reform alliance here that at one stage included Republicans like Gerald Ford uh, and Bob Dole and Henry Cabot Lodge, who was Nixon's running mate, that coalition uh, has broken down. And of course, now the Republicans have become firm defenders of the federal principle behind the Electoral College. Is that because the Electoral College very significantly underrepresents some of the most some of the safest Democrat areas, I think, of New York and California in particular? Absolutely. And we've moved away from one person, one vote. For example, an electoral college vote for Wyoming represents 190,000 members of the population. But in California, a similar electoral college vote represents 680,000 voters. So there are huge distortions here. Now, obviously, if, say, California decided, well, let's move to a proportional system in which we split California's electoral uh, college votes the way that Maine and Nebraska do, obviously, that would be a massive blow to the Democrat hopes of winning the presidency ever, ever again. And so, There's a problem here. There's yet another form of of partisan gridlock here because any form of amelioration of the current system looks from one party perspective, at least, as some kind of chicanery or gameplay. So actually, I don't I don't really see, although although there is a, a national popular vote compact among some states I don't see that taking effect for some time to come. There are just so many checks and balances built into the current system. And such is the nature of partisan division and polarisation at present that I I just do not see a a sensible way forward. I I think the only hope I see, and it's, it's, it's it's another nightmare scenario, is you get another another election result where, say, somebody runs up, I mean, it'd have to be a Democrat, runs up massive popular vote advantage across the state. Say it gets to somewhere like a 10 million popular vote advantage, but but loses the Electoral College. And I I wondered if if you reach something like a, a 10 million popular vote difference between the loser of the Electoral College college's result and his advantage his or her advantage in the in the popular vote then you'd have a crisis of legitimacy for the electoral college but that would also be a very traumatic result in its own right and so i i do do not foresee any any good conclusion come out of this thank you that was tremendous i think you've told us a lot about the checks provided by the system i'm not that sure whether it provides any balances really But let us hope that the outcome on December the 14th provides no further difficulties. Thank you, Colin.